Praise God. It's always Pentecost, isn't it? It's always Christmas. It's always Pentecost. It's always a good day to just get all of what Jesus has for us. So I've still been, I've been really stirred. I was just with uh, family camp at Hebron this week, and uh, it was really cool being with the Crumbs and the Petersheims. They were there at family camp this week, and, and there's some openings now, so we'd love to take it over, like a hillside takeover week. But there's a group out there that are really just, they're, they're precious saints. They love the Lord. They, they're, they're filled with the Spirit, and they come each year to kind of get refreshed and have a time together. But the Lord just can't get me away. I can't get my heart away from this whole thing about keeping our hopes up, about not allowing despair to settle in, not allowing uh, God's dreams to get canceled because we've experienced some things in life. And for sure, there's like this blanket that it feels like the enemy is just trying to put on everybody. And if the body of Christ would ever get under that thing is if we're underneath the prince, the prince of the power of the air. You know, that's one of the nicknames of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So if we get a mindset that we're, well, we're under the air, so we're under his influence, then we're misguided. We've completely missed the point. Where are we actually? Our bodies are here, but we are sitting together with Christ Jesus in heavenly places, in a realm that cannot be touched. We exist, our permanent existence, reality for us is not what we see with our naked eye. This is just a little portion of it. This isn't even the most important part, although we spend our entire lives building this part. You know, our lives, our careers, and all these kind of things. The most important part about who we are is that we are eternally seated in Christ in heavenly places. We're already there. So don't for a moment settle for a thought that says, well, I'm just under something right now. No, you're not. The only thing we might be under is deception to think that we're underneath anything to do. Jesus, I love the... The picture of Jesus, you know, is that uh, right away from Genesis 3.16, that the serpent would uh, bite his heel, but he would crush his head. So if you think of yourself as the least of the members of the body of Christ, the least important, like I'm the heel of the body of Christ, guess what? He's still under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet, right? I'm just testing you. He said, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. So if you're the least member of the body of Christ, guess where the devil is? I just really, so I just feel to kind of share some more things because uh, I've just been hearing, and it has been some conversations here among hillsiders, but also just, you know, some other saints that I'm in fellowship with and connection with, and I just, I keep hearing again and again, like there's this demonic broadcast going about that says just lower your hopes, lower your expectations, just get by, just, you know, struggle to, to get through the day, the economy's bad, all of a bad news on the horizon everywhere we seem to look. But I want to encourage you to have greater expectations than you've ever had before. I, I read the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens when I was in college, and I feel compelled to read it again. So that, that's got to be Holy Spirit, because he's a depressing guy. I mean, he lived in a horrible time in London, and he wrote about what life was like. But Great Expectations is the story. It's a rags to to success kind of story and it's an overcoming kind of story and I feel like God wants us to enter into a story that we we don't allow the things that happen to change our perspective now as I was in seminary we had a lot of discussion about what's called experiential theology which means be careful not to read the scriptures and bend the scriptures to your life's experience 
which means like I don't believe it until I experience it. And the irony of it all is that many of the people that warn against that have an experiential theology when it comes to the Holy Spirit, when it comes to faith, when it comes to stepping out into the unknown. Because many who preach today that there is no baptism of the Spirit, it ended at the first century, and many who say and teach those kind of things come to believe that because they've been disappointed before. They've maybe prayed for somebody who was sick and they didn't get healed. They, they sat at the bedside of a loved one who was dying of a disease and over and over again fasted and prayed and called on the Lord and they didn't get the healing that they were looking for. And so they changed their theology. In other words, their sum total of what they believe the scripture says to match their life's experience. That's always a mistake. The proper way is to read the scriptures and have our expectations lifted up. That though we may not experience yet everything that we read about in the word, that we have this thing that rises up. It's called Christ in us, the hope of glory, that says, oh, that's normal. My life's experience, not normal. If there's sickness in it, if there's disease in it, if there's depression in it, if there's anything that makes me feel under, not normal. So it's not for us to settle on. Am I reaching anybody yet? Like five of you. And that's, we'll start with that. We'll go from there. That's all right. I don't mind amending myself. There's, there's a thing I believe the enemy is, is uh, trying to do. And I want to take us to a story to just bring some things out today. Because um, the world's in desperate need of a people that carry within them not just a belief in the God of all hope, but like what Paul's blessing was to the Romans. He said, and now may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, all joy and peace in believing. Why? So that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not like, you know, hope sometimes, we think of hope like I'm just holding on to hope. I'm clinging on to this thing for dear, why did I grab the microphone? For dear life, I'm holding on like I'm just getting drugged behind this thing and if I let go, my whole life's gonna be destroyed. That is not the picture of biblical hope. Biblical hope is an abounding thing that spills out of our mouth. It spills out of the way we make decisions. It spills out of the way that we influence the world around us all the time. That's biblical hope. That's hope that's in Christ. That's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Do you know that Jesus was never depressed a day in his life? Do you know that heaven is never depressed, which means put down, shoved under something? It's never happened, never will. And so I want to urge us to step back up higher, to think higher, to allow our expectations to match our faith. That was one of the wisest things I ever heard Randy Clark teach and share. It was a a real joy. I was here when Randy Clark came down from Toronto, and of all the places, Randy Clark was uh, one of the main people used by God in the Toronto blessing, we call it, the outpouring of the Spirit that happened at that airport church in Toronto, an extraordinary move of God. Still going on today, very strong, by the way. That's where ministries like Heidi Baker came out of that move of the Spirit, and he took this farm boy from, I forget what Midwest state Randy Clark's from, put him there, and, and the man was used to God while he was, he was experiencing revival on the outside, and I mean to the tune of hundreds of thousands that were coming through that place, getting saved, healed, delivered, and sent out. He's got one of the most extraordinary healing ministries that's ever walked the planet, and I say that 
not because maybe he's done greater miracles than the likes of some others who have gone before him, but because the impartation of his ministry has sent out hundreds, maybe thousands of healers to go to the nations with a gospel that's not in word only, but in power and demonstration. But God was using him, and he said behind the scenes, he was undergoing inner healing from some really bad experiences he'd had in pastoral ministry, and God was working on the inside, and at the same time, taking that empty, weak cup that he describes himself as being and ministering to thousands. I mean, they had services all day long. They couldn't keep up with all the people God was sending. And then one of the wisest things I ever heard him say was it's, it's a mistake, the, the secret subtle mistake that most believers make is that we think that our faith is enough. He said our faith is always, you know, if you ask a believer in Jesus who's read the scriptures, and I believe, you know, like all of us, we believe all of the scripture is still true, and it's not just true to be thought about, it's true enough to be lived out. That's how when I get around my, the doctrine I just mentioned about not believing the spirits for today is called cessationism. So when I get around my friends who believe in that, we start talking about the scriptures, uh, I'll always say to them at some point in the conversation, look, my heart's not to argue about theology and argue about the Bible. I just want to experience every word of it. I don't want any of it to be trapped in the realm of theory as if God's a belief of my mind. I want to experience what the Word says. I want to live it. I love the Word of God so much. I don't want a single verse to be missed out of my life. Now, I prayed that stupid and dangerous prayer years ago. God, I want to experience all of your scriptures. I hadn't read the whole Bible yet when I prayed that prayer. And then I got to the parts where all oh, the suffering for Jesus and all this other stuff comes in. I go, oh man, can I take that one back? <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. You don't pray for suffering, by the way. It's going to happen anyway. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but you don't need to pray for it. Don't do that. That's a dumb prayer. Just take, don't, don't say it. Because one said you can't take it back. But anyway, and, and Randy said, the mistake is to believe that faith's enough. We need our expectation to match our faith. And what happens with many of us is we've prayed, or I may say you've prayed for the sick and you don't see healing, or you've ministered the gospel and, and you're expecting somebody's gonna get saved and they don't get saved, or you, know, you poured your life into something like I shared last week and only to see it just fall apart even though you, you ministered with all your heart, you gave your best to that thing only to find it fall away like Saul fell away from God on the throne. And we've done that. And because of that, although we would say, yeah, I believe, I believe, but we don't live with this expectation. And, and God's the, the restorer of hope and the restorer of expectation. So the next time we pray, it's not a half-hearted, double-minded kind of prayer. It's praying as if we're praying for the first time. So if you're here today or you're listening today and, and you're in the middle of something where you've been calling on the Lord about it for months and the months have turned into years and maybe the years even have turned into decades, this word's for you. And I want to really urge you today to let God take your hope again. Let him make your expectation now match your faith because you're not an unbeliever. Can I just say that? The problem, I just feel this from the Lord. I might not be speaking to everybody. There is such a thing as unbelief. But I believe that what I'm talking to right now is that you haven't lost your faith. It's not because you've lost your faith. You, it's that the enemy has suppressed hope so that when you pray, you don't expect God to come through anymore. I believe he wants to restore that today in Jesus' name. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. And I want to get these uh, two disciples on the way to their, um, their destination. After this is... 
after the resurrection, it's the day of the resurrection or maybe a day or two later, and um, they're walking to a city called Emmaus. And the name Emmaus means uh, a place of warm water. It, it would spiritually represent the place of lukewarmness. Do you know the, the first sign that we're losing hope and the first sign that our expectations no longer match our faith is that we're okay and comfortable with lukewarm Christianity. We're okay living in such a way that the passion of our heart, which is Jesus, isn't reflected in our lives. Where, you know, like I've asked this question, it's one I ask of myself as a heart check, and it's one I'll put out always to the saints of God. If Jesus was completely removed from your life tomorrow, what would be different? And if the answer is not much or nothing at all, then I would suggest that's a dangerous place to be, and, and you may be finding yourself on the road to Emmaus, on the road to a lukewarm place where we're neither hot or cold, but we're just kind of going through the motions. I don't know about you, I left that going through the motions stuff behind 32 years ago this fall, 33 years ago. I'm a 33 years old in Jesus. I'm sorry, my math's not working today, but something like that, left that behind, have no interest in it anymore. It makes no sense not to be on fire for Jesus if we understand who he is. Once he's revealed as he is, you know, the last book of the Bible, the revelation, we call it the revelation. Some believe it's the revelation of the Antichrist, but no, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned against him at the Last Supper, when he got taken up to see Jesus like he is right now, he saw his hair white as wool, his eyes like a blaze of fire. He passed out. He was as dead, it says. He fainted at the sight of how glorious Jesus is right now. And if we ever diminish Jesus down from what he is right now, then we're on the road to Emmaus. We're forgetting who he actually is, or maybe we're just in need of a fresh revelation. Lord, take the humble words and, and the poor words of this preacher, the words that come out of this man's mouth right now could never match what your spirit's able to do. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do the work right on the words of this preacher today, right and inhabit with the praises we've offered up and reveal Jesus as you are today. Holy Spirit, it's a favorite thing to do. Pour out such a spirit of wisdom and discernment and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus today that we would never settle for lukewarm heading down the road to Emmaus Christianity, but we'd always live in a spirit of renewal, in a spirit of revival, in a spirit where our first love gets renewed day by day. Amen. So these two men were leaving Jerusalem. Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. Don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for me. And, and these disciples were walking away. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> he must have such a smirk on his face. Well, no, I'm kind of new. What happened? <laughs> and they said to him, the things about Jesus of Na the Nazarene who was a prophet 
mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And then some women among us amazed us because they were at the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find his body and they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just like the women said, but him they did not see. And, and I'll leave it at, at that for a moment. So here's these two guys who were disciples of Jesus. They were close enough that they were in the company of saints who was hiding out for fear of the Jews and whom, to whom the women came, Mary and the, all the Marys. And they came and they said, we saw him. He's alive. Jesus is alive. The tomb's empty. Two of the men, John and Peter, John running faster than Peter, an unnecessary detail that John added to his gospel that I think is just hilarious. I was just thinking about that the other day. I should have said family camp how you know well that's an unnecessary detail I still can find no spiritual meaning in it but I could just see John nudging Peter and say hey John hey Peter you don't like it write your own gospel (laughs) because that's an important enough detail to me Um, anyway they go to the tomb they come back everybody hears the news and it says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus when they walked on the road They, they couldn't believe the women who told them No, he's alive, for real. Mary had had a conversation with Jesus by that point. Mary Magdalene, that is. Mary talked to him, and she came back testifying, guys, he's alive, you should see him. He's so amazing, I didn't even recognize him. His resurrected body is unbelievable. And 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 so the rest of them were kind of not sure what to do, but these two started down the road toward Emmaus toward lukewarmness and it says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him now I used to read that and think well the Holy Spirit covered their eyes so that they wouldn't recognize Jesus so they could have this conversation and so Luke would have another story to tell in the Bible about the resurrection and I I landed on it a a couple of weeks ago and and I stopped for a moment say you know it doesn't say that God prevented them from recognizing him What prevented their eyes from recognizing the resurrected Jesus? Well, I would propose to you that they had such despair in their hearts. They had just heard the best news ever recorded in all human history, that the Lord who was crucified, just like he predicted, rose on the third day and was alive again. They just heard news that all of us at one point heard and our hearts rejoiced and we came and we got saved. We got born again after we heard that news. They were the first ones to hear it, but these two, for whatever reason, couldn't receive it. What, why, why was it they couldn't receive it? Their hearts had gone so deep into grief, so deep into mourning, that they weren't gonna be able to come out of the pit. They weren't able to be pulled out even by the testimony of, of people that they knew really well, people who were not given to lying, people that had no reason to make this up. They couldn't hear it, why? Because despair puts our gaze downward. As I shared last week, why are you downcast, O my soul? Despair puts our gaze downward and it makes it impossible. When we allow grief and mourning to remain too long, it can turn our hearts to despair. We're looking down at the ground and we fail to recognize that Jesus is right there walking with us. It's impossible even to see the testimonies that are happening right around our eyes. Are you in a place of despair this morning? 
Do you find yourself in a place where even the hearing of good news, even when somebody shares, hey, I was healed, something in you responds to that with a, well, let's, let's hope it doesn't come back again. You hear that somebody just had a breakthrough in their life. You hear a testimony about Jesus began to heal this relationship. He brought that person to repentance about an issue that's been going on for a long time. And if the response of the heart is one of, well, well, we'll wait and see. You know, that, that might have been repentance, but I want to see some fruit first before I'll believe it. I want to exhort you. First of all, Jesus is here to meet with you. And I want to exhort you to lift up your eyes and behold. Stop looking down at the ground. Stop remembering over and over again in your heart that thing, that disappointment that came your way. I just can't even imagine. I've tried to, and I've asked the Lord even for grace. Help me to feel what it was like to be one of those disciples beholding Jesus on a cross. They'd put their entire lives into that ministry. They'd sacrificed everything, left behind businesses, left behind family, sold everything they had and followed Jesus for three and a half years, some of them, only to see it crucified. I mean, not just dead and gone, but horrifically crucified right before their eyes. And the trauma of that day affected some of them so much, affected all of them so much, that even Mary coming and seeing an empty tomb, talking to Jesus, couldn't believe that he was actually resurrected as he said. That's the power of despair. Grief is the most powerful of all emotions with the exception of hope. The most powerful thing, and they both pull in different directions, don't they? The same power that grief has to suck us down into a pit where we live in despair, downcast, our eyes down on the ground, is the same power that hope has to have God be the glory and the lifter of our head. So like David, we could pray the prayer, many are they which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. You want to know how David went from chased around in the wilderness to the throne? That's how he did it. He refused to be downcast. He refused to allow life circumstances and the disappointment. I'd suggest that apart from Jesus, nobody experienced disappointment quite like David did during his days. But he refused to allow despair to settle in when grief came his way. So as by way of reminder, just in case you weren't here last week, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they'll be comforted. There is a necessary mourning that must happen when we lose something we love, when we're disconnected and grief comes into our lives. The power of grief is overwhelming. It can make you want to stay in your bed and keep the covers over your head. Yeah, I know by experience. It, 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 grief is the ultimate robber of hope. It makes the heart feel like I will never put my hope in something again because I can't bear to feel this way ever again. And the gift of mourning, which is the expression of grief, it's when we pour out our heart before the Lord. It's where we take those things that if we don't get rid of them, they turn to bitterness if they're allowed to remain. Bitterness, cynicism, where we even say to God, I'm not taking another step with you until you explain this to me or do something about it. 
We can get to that place if we don't learn how to mourn. But when we learn how to pour out our heart before the Lord, we know how to mourn before him and say, God, I can't handle this. I need to pour this out before you. I know that I could trust you. My mind knows. My heart's experienced you before, but right now it's just hard to see through the fog of my grief. So I'm gonna cry until I have no more tears. I'll ride the wave of grief till I get to the other side of it and trust that the comforter's waiting for me right there. That's the power of mourning. But when we allow despair to set in and we keep our eyes down on the ground, we can't even see Jesus right next to us. That's why, you know, on the other end of it, all, many, all, many or all of us have had the experience of what I've just described. And on the other side of it, we look back and we see that his goodness and his loving kindness have been following us all the way. We couldn't see it in front of us because he's walking beside us. The comforter, the paraclete, was right there all along. Just like Jesus was with these two men, their hearts were so full of despair because of the things that they just witnessed, that there's Jesus talking to them. And I love how he just comes up alongside them and he says, tell me all about it. What things, he asks them. Sometimes we need to hear that question from the Lord. What things? He's the God who already knows. Jesus experienced that day, right? He was on the cross. Go ahead, tell me all about the cross. Tell me all about what they did to that Jesus. Jesus experienced it and went into the grave and back again. And yet he wanted to hear from them. Go ahead and tell me all about it. Tell me about what brought grief into your life because I want to hear the story. I want to teach you how to pour out your heart before me. And he says, what things? Because he cares. Even though he already knows, he still cares. And he wants to teach us how to pour all that stuff out. So they they do. So when we allow our disappointments, right? They were disappointed. They they said we hoped he was going to be the one. Their disappointments turned to despair. We can miss Jesus walking right beside us. Now here's where their problem was. This gets revealed in verse 19. They said, Jesus said, well, what things? You know, what is it that happened? What were the things that came your way to cause you to be walking this road to Emmaus when I happened? that Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. And, and they said these things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in word and mighty in deed in the sight of God and all the people. He was a prophet. There's a, a, I've shared this, I think, in messages before. We can reduce Jesus to be whatever it is that we think he is or whatever we need him to be. So to these men, he was a prophet. He was mighty in word, he was mighty in deed, but they didn't come to the revelation of who Jesus is. If they're calling him a prophet at this point, pull away from God and just kind of go through the motions. Hey, look, I come to church. I've got a good job. I love my family. I love my friends. You know, I even minister sometimes. If you allowed yourself to get to that place and reconsider, can you really see Jesus like he is right now? I would propose that the key, that the thing that happens when revival gets poured out, and I mean when, you know, personal experience with Jesus turns into a corporate experience that then spills out into the streets, it begins with seeing Jesus like he is right now. That it begins with fully comprehending who he is. You know where true worship comes from? Is when tr- the revelation, when the curtain gets pulled and Jesus is revealed as he is. Because then you can worship and you can never exaggerate. The best part about worshiping God, as opposed to when we give praises to people, you know, we're uh, depending on your love language, maybe I'm, I'm an, a, I like a, encouraging people and I might be prone to exaggeration sometimes with singing the praiseworthy deeds of my friends and those that I love like that. Guilty as charged and I don't care, I'm gonna still do it. 
Because if nothing else, I might be calling you calling up higher to what you're coming into and I'm seeing the first fruits of. So I'm going to keep doing that. But the great thing about God is you can never exaggerate. You can never sing songs. We can never say words. In fact, all the tribes, tongues, and nations, all the tongues that have ever been, still haven't come up with enough superlatives to describe what God's actually like and what Jesus is actually like right now. I mean, think of it, since the moment, we don't know exactly when God created the angels, maybe it was on the first day, let there be light, because they are messengers of light, but anyway, I don't want to get into that. Whenever they came into being, they have not stopped singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's so glorious, they don't even need to change their tune. They're still in awe when they look at him for all these thousands of years, or however long it's been that they've been in existence. They never run out. So it is with us. So I encourage you to make it your prayer when Jesus has been reduced to a meter of needs, to somebody who's there to satisfy the desire of our heart, you just ask God, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Help me to see Jesus like I did that first moment when I was born again. Can you all tap into that moment? There's, I could tap into it almost any time I want to. The moment that I first met the Lord, here I am right there again. When the preacher got to the line in the story of the prodigal son and something rose up in me, I'd known about him. I'd been in church all my life. I'd heard people preach the gospel. Man, I'd even been to a Billy Graham crusade by this point. But I got in the presence of anointed preaching and Jesus met me and I'll never forget what he looked like in that moment. And when we get back into that place, then lukewarm is no longer an option. The road to Emmaus seems like the dumbest road that there is the road away from the city of peace, the road away from the place where Pentecost is about to get poured out, it feels absolutely like nonsense. What was I thinking to walk down that road? And it happens when we reduce Jesus to less than the fullness of God, we fill in the gap of revelation. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He'll never be anything else. All of what God is, as reflected in everything he's made and everything he is, that's the fullness. We fill the gap with whatever we want him to be or whatever we need him to be. And I can, I'll, I'll propose that that is a setup. It's a trap for the disappointment that leads to despair. How many of you got a prophecy in your life or maybe it began as a word from your heart or a word of the Lord that came to you and you went ahead and filled in all the blanks on how it was going to work out and the timing of it and what it was going to look like when it was done. Am I the only one or are you guys just hot and sweaty today and you're not, you're not responsive? We all do that. We all think we know what God meant by that. It was the entire mistake all the Jews made in Jesus' day, even his disciples. They had already filled in the blank on what Messiah, the word Messiah means. The Savior of Israel, like these guys articulated. He came for a lot more than that. He came for a lot more than just redeeming his own people, Israel. He came to be the Savior of the world, beginning with the chosen and then going out to the corners of the earth. He had a whole lot more in mind than they could ever have asked or imagined. He was about to blow them away and they're thinking, hey, you guys are gonna be the first ones in on the new world that's about to be created. Their thinking had been reduced to just set us free from the Romans. That's what Messiah is gonna be all about, that they couldn't even hear or recognize that they have the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's just a prophet. He's mighty in word and deed and in favor with the people. When we reduce God to be just what we need him to be or just what we want him to be, then we've also reduced our expectations. 
because we will get what we, you know, we have not because we ask not. We'll get from the Lord, we'll receive from the Lord whatever it is that we expect to receive from the Lord. And I wanna urge us today to let that gap in revelation, let the Lord fill it and bridge that gap that he's always exceedingly abundantly more than we've asked or imagined because a God that we've created in our image is no God at all. If we come to find a God that always agrees with us, if we, like our prayer life or our thought life is like, I was thinking this and hey, look at that, God agrees with me, that was awesome. If it's always like that, I would suggest a quick repentance from that posture. The word of God should always be stretching us. The presence of God in our life should always be stretching us further. As soon as we think we've got a corner on understanding God, how many of you know he just shows up in another form we never imagined? Whether it's another person, whether it's another call, whether it's another understanding of what he is, he's always blowing away our boxes. The whole, you know, there was one time that God allowed himself to be confined to a box. And it was a mistake to believe that he would ever want to be contained in a box. He did that for grace. He did that because it was the only safe way that he could dwell in the midst of his people, Israel. But now there's no box. Now there is no way that we will ever come to understand. Paul himself even prayed for the church. And he said, I pray that you know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth, and to know the love. I don't know what I just said, but it wasn't the word I was looking for. You know what I mean, the cube, the holy cube of God. The, to explore this cube will take all eternity. And if we ever think we got a corner on it, we understand him enough, he's just smirking <coughs> and walking by us on the road to Emmaus. Say, oh yeah, tell me more. Tell me more about Jesus. Because since you know me better than apparently I know myself, tell me all about it. Walking with Jesus involves conforming our understanding to his, conforming our understanding to his understanding. It's a big mistake to go through events of life without inviting Jesus in to help understand them. Number one mistake made by, <coughs> by all of us who have had a season of grief, which is inevitable, a season of loss, <coughs> and have tried to understand it without inviting the Lord's understanding into the equation. Every person I've ever walked with who's gotten into the realm of bitterness, tried to do it without Jesus. Tried to understand the situation, asked questions, and maybe because we were frustrated that we were asking questions and God wasn't answering them, we made the mistake maybe of asking questions of the mind instead of realizing it's my heart that was broken, it's my heart that's been torn in two, and my mind can't heal my heart. Uh, my heart needs, it's out, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Keep your heart with all diligence. From it springs all the issues of life. Not our mind, it's our heart that was in need of Jesus. And maybe we made the mistake at some point of waiting for answers that satisfied our mind. Maybe we came to a, some kind of conclusion that didn't involve the Lord. <coughs> and it made room for bitterness. And so we, we want God to conform to our understanding rather than we understand uh, we conform to his understanding. Going through life's events without allowing Jesus is the ultimate idolatry. We have always got to be willing to say, I've been wrong about you in this area. I mean, the first day we were born again, the moment we were born again, we were willing to say, I've been wrong about you. I thought you were a distant, religious, judgmental God or whatever it was. Or I thought you didn't even exist until you showed up. I was happy to believe that you were not because I wanted to be something that I thought you might not want me to be. 
whatever it was, we first said, you know, I've been wrong about you. You are my Father in heaven. You are the God of love. You are embodied in the Jesus who endured the cross and thought nothing of the shame because of the joy set before you, which is me. Our willingness to say I was wrong and our understanding of God is the beginning of getting off the road to Emmaus and back into the realm of great expectations and hopes that God has in store. They admitted to him, we were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel. But we were hoping. We had a hope. We had something in mind. We expected certain things of Messiah. What we did not expect was that he wouldn't even resist the Romans when he was arrested. That he would take, one man, one of his disciples, one of his apostles was a zealot. In a moment he could have called the troops and we would have been happy to fight to overcome the Romans and overcome even the Jews that handed him over to the Romans. We would have been willing to fight in an instant and he didn't do it. We were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. They had Their expectation of redemption was just set us free and give us a better life. Give us a happy, clappy life in the promised land. Give us the American dream before America even existed. We just want to have our land back. We want to prosper. We, would just want to, we just want to go back to the good old days like that. Jesus had more. Jesus had more. And it was going to be on the other side of suffering. It was going to be on the other side of really difficult, really painful circumstances. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And <clears throat> at the root of every offense is an unmet expectation. This is a whole teaching in and of itself. We cannot be offended at something if we weren't expecting something at first, right? You don't get offended with somebody unless you thought they would do something or thought they wouldn't do something that they did. The expectations that we impose on one another are all the minefields we create around us for offense. So now we call them triggers, I guess. All the triggers we've got. If you don't meet my need in a certain way or you do this thing that I think you shouldn't do, now I'm offended. That's the root of all offense, an unmet expectation. We can even become offended at God when he doesn't meet our expectations. And that's what these guys were. Offended simply means we stumble. We're no longer walking a path as we did before. Something causes us to trip up, maybe even fall flat on our face where we stay if we're not careful. So we, we got offended. Why? Because God, you didn't show up. <coughs> I expected you to answer that prayer. I expected you to be there for me when I needed you most. I expected you to stop that tragedy from happening. We have these expectations that we put on God about, that have to do with the land of the living. How many of you know that actual heavenly hope never changes? This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters beyond the veil. It's anchored in heavenly places. That kind of hope never disappoints. We have eternal life in Christ. Nobody can take that from us. We are sons and daughters of God. That's our identity. Nothing can ever change that. Those are hopes that are anchored in heavenly places. What happens down here in the earth? If we think that belief in God and walking with a living hope means bad things are never going to happen, I got a few million martyrs that are going to ask some questions about that theology. Because in the middle of serving the Lord wholeheartedly, they were willing to give, as Abraham Lincoln so well put it, the last full measure of devotion. Happily being tortured, it says in Hebrews, happily giving their lives over to the flames for the sake of advancing the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never promised us and never called us and I urge us not to put our hopes in things that only pertain to this life. 
Now, when we have our hope anchored in the right place, now we can pray the prayer of faith. This, again, is another message in and of itself. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we ever stop praying for the sick. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we don't stand at the feet of a dead man and pray that God will raise him from the dead. I'm not suggesting that for a minute. But what keeps us from falling into despair is when we have our hope anchored in the heavenly places. Now we can go and pray the prayer of faith again and again and again, even if it doesn't come to pass. One of my favorite messages, I've recommended it to you before, maybe it's time to give it a listen, is Randy Clark's message. It's called The the Thrill of Victory and the Agony of Defeat. And everybody loves the agony of defeat. That's from Wild World of Sports, by the way, for all you 1970s people. The agony of defeat was his testimony of how he prayed for well over 100 people to be healed when he came to believe that healing was for today. Not a one of them got healed. The first person died that night after he laid hands. She came to church. He prayed for her. She died that night. So if Randy Clark's expectation would have been from the first day I prayed for the sick, everybody I lay hands on is going to be healed, how many of you know we wouldn't have Global Awakening today, which is a powerful ministry. So when we demand that God or anyone else conform their actions to measure up and meet our expectations, then what we've done is partnered with a controlling spirit. Have you ever tried to control God? (laughs) Someone has. Yeah, all of us have tried, and we pray these prayers that in our heart, whether we say the words or not, in our heart we're saying, God, if you don't come through the way I expect you to, then you can't be my God anymore. (laughs) you're all looking at me you've all done it too we don't say those words out loud but here's how we know we've done that if something happens or something doesn't happen that we expected God to come through if we find ourselves pulling away from God pulling away from his people this is exactly what we've done instead of just simply praying a prayer of faith believing that we're going to be a conduit for heaven to invade a situation however heaven sees fit However, God sees fit to move at the moment. Our default posture is God wants to heal, save, and deliver. Always. That's the default. If we step away from the default, it's because we've allowed our experience to dumb down the revelation of Jesus that we have in the scriptures. How do we prevent our hearts from doing that? We don't try to control God. You know, have you ever prayed and maybe it didn't happen? It's really... It's embarrassing when you're up in front of a group of people and you pray and nothing happens. Right? You pray, everybody expects us, oh man, the anointing's present, it's gonna happen. Oh, it doesn't happen. Maybe you don't have an anointing after all. Maybe there's something wrong with me and that's why this isn't happening. Look, everybody's looking. And so we shrink back from it. You know what that's all about, right? It's just pride. Jesus isn't embarrassed. Do you know that? If we pray and the thing doesn't happen that we prayed for, I'm going to tell you Jesus isn't embarrassed. There may be a reason for it that we're unaware of. Some of them are in the scriptures. Some of them we just don't know. Why didn't it happen as I expected it? The answer can simply be, I don't know. But I know what the Word says. And I know what the Spirit of God in me is compelled to do. I know what Christ in me, the hope of glory, is eager to do. And I'm not going to change that just because it didn't turn out the way I expected it to before. I'm not going to dumb down my expectations just because it didn't turn out the way I thought it would. I will not allow my offense with God to interfere with me living by faith and not by sight. Amen? So Jesus turned to them at some point after hearing enough 
chuckling all the way. And he says to them, oh, foolish, of, foolish men, slow of heart, and to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, that's always the problem, right? We listen and we zero in on certain phrases. And if you ask somebody, you know, what was the word of the Lord to you? And you know, the reason why today we have a big advantage over people 2,000 years ago, if you get a prophecy in this church, we type it out. And I have a book, now it's an Evernote. I keep it on my person at all times with everybody's prophecies. Which by the way, I haven't asked you this for a while. Um, if you get prophecy, would you please pass it on to me? Because I use prophecy as well as my personal knowledge of your life and situation, combine it together with the Spirit of God, and that's how I pray by the Spirit for everyone here. So whatever the Lord has said, I'm interested. I'm especially interested, and some of you have experienced this, sometimes I'll pull the word out and go, hey, what did you do about this? Because God said that, it's been like 15 years ago since he said that. I wonder what action you took in response to what God said to you. Because I've discovered, and this word is largely birthed out of this experience, that maybe there was a hope. We filled in the blank on how that was going to come to pass. And, and maybe you've experienced what many of us have, that experiences that the exact opposite of what that word said happens first. It's the, the dip before the mountain, right? You go through the valley before you climb the mountain. It's the Joseph story, the up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down of coming into the dream of God. And because that dip happened, maybe you pulled away and you forgot about the word. You put it in a closet somewhere. You buried it someplace because it was too painful to think about. But when the word of the Lord speaks, it's what all he has said is going to come to pass. There's not a word that God has ever said, not a hope he has for us, not a dream he has for us, not a gift that he has put on the inside of us that went out without the power to see it through. No word of God is without power. No prophecy is without power. No word of the Lord ever returns to him empty, but it accomplishes everything for which it was sent. Our partnership with him determines the length of time it takes for that word to come to pass. And I would even say, and this is controversial, I would even say that we have the power, we have the authority in our lives by our failure to partner with God in the fulfilling of prophecy never to experience some of the things that God spoke. This is the power of despair. God has certain things in mind. How do I know this? Well, he told Saul after he removed the kingdom from him, I had in mind for you that you would be king forever, that you and your sons after you would be king. That was my plan for you. You walked away from it. You chose to set up your own kingdom instead of partner with me in the fulfillment of that word, and now I'm taking the kingdom away from you to give it to a man after my own heart. We can do that with our lives. We have the authority over our own lives enough to be able to do that. So I'm urging you today, keep partnering with Jesus. Don't allow the disappointment to reduce expectations. Don't allow the unanswered prayers or the things that didn't turn out the way we thought they would or maybe they didn't turn out yet the way that we thought they would. It's not over if we're still alive and breathing. There's always a possibility. There's always some way that God could come through. Even restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He can do it. He can do it. If we don't partner with a spirit of despair, but we partner with that spirit of hope and raise our expectations. Jesus said, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer all these things? Didn't you read the rest? Dude, did you skip Isaiah chapter 53? Did you kind of jump over that part because you didn't know what to do with it? I mean, I would have loved to have been there and I wish they'd find the Dead Sea tapes. Tapes, CDs, MP3s. 
Got to keep updating that, that picture and find that and hear all of what Jesus Old Testament survey class. Man, I would sign up for that. I'd pay everything to be a part of that. And hear Jesus draw Jesus out of every, every stroke of the pen, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament and show where he was in every page all along. That would be amazing. And the problem that we run into is we fall into despair because our expectations not met because we forgot about all the rest of what God said. We love the part about the mountaintop. We love the part about the answered prayer, but it's the process coming into that. We don't want to hear that part, and sometimes we forget that in order for the world to be saved, it was necessary that the Christ had to suffer, go into the grave, conquer the grave while he was dead, and then we get to the other side where all the promises of God can be yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Are you guys okay? All right. So when disappointment comes from a misunderstanding of the word, the solution is to have a teachable heart, to be teachable, <clears throat> to never get to a place where we think we got God all figured out, we got all boxed in, we know how it's going to work out because we have the word. We have the word, and we know how God is. How many of you know that all of the Bible is the word of God, but all of the Bible is not the sum total of everything that God's ever had to say? Oh man, I'd get shot in some circles of Christianity for saying that. The word of God is not all that God has to say. There's not a word that's wrong. And everything that we need in order to understand and to have life and godliness is in this word. But he's still speaking. He is still speaking. Sometimes it's making some scripture come to life that we thought was long since past use, past its expiration date. Sometimes it's a reminder of things he's spoken to us before, but he's still speaking. He who has ears to hear will hear what the Spirit of God's saying to the church and to our lives. He's always speaking. I urge you today to get up out of disappointment and start pressing in for all of what God has in store. Almost every time we're disappointed with God, it's because we allowed our inferior expectations <coughs> to cloud the revelation of something better that God's prepared for us. Almost every time we have an idea of how God's going to show up. We have an idea of how God's going to come through like these disciples did. We thought he was going to save Israel. Well, Jesus came to save the world. They did not have that anywhere in their mind. Their expectations were too low. I want to propose to you that the things that bring pain to our lives because they didn't turn out the way we thought they would, that, that was an, the reason for it is because that was an inferior understanding of something greater that God had in store. He's not a God who teases us. He's not a God who puts things in front of us only to pull the carpet out from underneath. If there's something that doesn't happen, I would suggest that we, we turn our default posture into saying, what's the greater thing that's going to come out of this? What's the ministry coming out of this mess? What's the greater glory that's going to come as I sacrifice this thing and receive something better on the other side of it? To, uh, forgiving God. Th this is something that we need to learn how to do. And I, I repelled at that, the, the hearing of that phrase. Why would God ever need to be forgiven of something? It's not like God ever sinned against anybody. God has never wronged anybody. But forgiveness, uh, for our end of the equation, forgiveness means I'm not going to hold something against you anymore. And I, I am absolutely positive that in most all of our lives, there is something. If there is an area we've shrunk back, is because we've held something against God. 
a way that he didn't come through when we need him to. That loved one died instead of got healed. That business fell apart instead of prospering. That relationship fell to pieces even though I sacrificed for it. And because we judged God, because we, we believed in our heart, whether it ever spilled out of our mouth or not, we believe you didn't come through for me. And it's like we're holding an offense against a God who has never offended anybody, not in the sinful sense of offense. So forgiving God means it's actually we're repenting. We're, we're saying, I am not going to hold this against you any longer. It means we release him from our own expectations. Why? Because we're ready to embrace something greater that he has for us. Andy, would you come on back up and uh, go into that song? If that's how you worked it out, I'm not sure who you, <clears throat> who you decided was coming up. But I want to give an opportunity to respond to the Lord right now and pour some things out to him. And here's what Paul learned about this. You all know about his famous thorn in the flesh. He said, because of the abundance of revelation given to me, I was given this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. In other words, I'm, I'm revealing, I'm seeing things about the new covenant. I'm understanding, I'm like the, the prophet of the new covenant. Man, even Peter doesn't get it. Peter wrote about Paul's letters. I think it's hilarious how he described it. They, he described Paul and he said, he describes these things that are such mysteries. You know, Paul, Paul has this understanding of Jesus. And even though he didn't walk with Jesus, it's like he understands him better than we do. And Paul had such revelation that it, he said, because of the abundance of revelations, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And he prayed, he cried out to God three times to be delivered of it. And Jesus' response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul said, well, therefore, I'll rejoice in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, he is strong. So it was as if God was saying to Paul, Paul, if you want to write letters to the churches, or do you want to write the Bible? I mean, you got this revelation, and in your own strength, and you know, with your own exalted pride, you're saying good things to build up the church. But I have something grander in store for you. I don't know if Paul knew that he was writing scripture or not, but God had this desire for Paul's heart that his own pride would get in the way of. Paul's expectations and what he, you know, the way he sacrificed for the church, I don't know all of what went through his heart, but God said, Paul, I, I am entrusting you with a word that people will read for, from now until my return that will grow them in Christ and bless them in Christ. So Paul had to release his expectation. God, surely you're gonna take this away. You don't want me to be tormented by this demonic spirit that's literally affecting my body in some way. Surely you're gonna deliver me from this. And God said, no, I have something greater for you, Paul, because you're gonna be the apostle that teaches about the grace of God like nobody in all of history has ever experienced it. And if you've read Galatians or Romans and you see the revelation that came out of the power that got perfected in weakness because Paul had nothing but the grace of God to hold on to, you can thank God that Paul released his offense with God because God didn't answer his prayer. And thank God that he saw fit in Paul. He saw a man who's willing to say, I'm gonna let go of my needs right now for a greater glory and a greater good and something that'll outlive my life for generations to come. So can we all stand on our feet for a moment? I'm gonna invite the, the worshipers here to just sing, sing this over us. And I invite, again, the altars open. You can make an altar out of your seat. Or you can open up the altar. And I wanna open this altar specifically to pour out an unmet expectation. Something that you know God didn't come through for me in this way. 
And maybe you're here today and with the presence of the Lord together with us right now, you can acknowledge in your heart that I've kind of pulled back from my expectations. I no longer have great hopes. I don't have the dreams and the the things that I felt by the Spirit of God when I was new or when I was really having a great season in the Lord. And I recognize today I've pulled back from that. Pour that out before the Lord. Forgive God. Forgive God if that's what it takes. Say to the Lord, "I, I repent and I release that expectation I had of you that you didn't meet. And it comes with a repentance. It comes with a, would you forgive me of reducing you to the one who who had to meet my need the way I saw fit? Release that and grab hold of something greater. Release it. We receive something greater from the Lord. Just invite the worship team to just minister that song. The altar is open. Pour out your heart before the Lord. I won't be getting back on the microphone. You're free to go when you feel like you're done with the Lord. God bless you. Have a great week in Jesus, filled with great expectations for the hopes and plans he has in store for you. Amen.